following sermon was delivered at Antioch Presbyterian Church, a mission work of Calvary Presbytery of the Presbyterian Church in America located in Woodruff, South Carolina. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com or contact us at info at AntiochPCA.com. May the Lord bless you as you receive gracious instruction from His Word. Well, I think that most of you boys and girls know the story that we call in the Bible the Good Samaritan. Remember that story? So Jesus is talking again to the Pharisees and, and He gives the same answer that He gives in the text that we read in Matthew chapter 24, 22. That uh, the first commandment is love God with heart, mind, soul, and strength. The second, love your neighbors yourself. Well, the, the Pharisee wants to justify himself to... Um, get out of the hot place he's in and so he asks you this question well who is my neighbor that's a very important question we need to answer that question if you're to love your neighbor as yourself and that's boys and girls when Jesus tells the story so you remember there was a traveler going down the road and he got attacked by robbers and they beat him up and robbed him left him on the side of the road to die and then Jesus talks about the priest who comes by. He's supposed to be the minister of mercy. And then a Levite who comes by. He's supposed to be running the dak on the ministry of the church. And they ignore him. They turn their heads. They don't want to get involved. The robbers might even be there. And then a Samaritan. The despised Samaritan. The one with whom the Jews would have nothing to do. The Samaritan sees the man. He gets him. He cleans his wounds, he anoints him with wine, he carries him into an inn and stays with him overnight and then pledges to pay whatever bill is not met when he comes back by. And you understand that Jesus is simply saying that your neighbor is the person whom God brings into your life whom you need to love. And that's really uh, what uh, this passage in, in Job chapter 31 verses 29 to 32 is all about. It's about how you love your neighbor. Now, loving friends and family, that's fairly easy. And doing good to those that can respond to you, well, that's fine. You see, the Holy Spirit takes this a step farther. A step further. It's not simply loving those who have been kind to you. No, it's loving those who hate you and and treats you spitefully. It's not doing good simply to those from whom you can get a return. It's doing good to a stranger. That is radical biblical love. That is the costly love that runs throughout the Bible. It's the mark of true Christian piety. And that's now what Job is claiming for himself here. As he continues to work down this list, remember he is seeking to vindicate himself against the scurrilous charges against him, all these made-up things about Job's life, and he's worked through his chastity, his fairness in business dealing, his commitment to uh, the marriage covenant, uh, the way he has uh, dealt with uh, uh, the poor and the oppressed. But he hadn't stopped yet. Now he's going to say that he also has loved in a costly, sacrificial manner those whom God has brought into His path. And so as He's illustrating here, the Spirit illustrates for you and me what it means to be, remember Job was blameless, upright, turning away from, uh, uh, turning away from evil and fearing God. 
Um, this is what that looks like again in our lives as God continues to sketch out a picture of the godly man, the godly woman. So here in verses 29 to 32, the Holy Spirit teaches that true biblical piety exercises costly love toward enemies and strangers. The Holy Spirit teaches that true biblical piety exercises costly love to enemies and to strangers. And I want to consider these two things with you, that uh, biblical piety embraces the enemy, or biblical love, and biblical love embraces the stranger. Well, first then, biblical love embraces uh, the enemy. And we see this in the first two verses. Have I rejoiced at the extinction of my enemy, or exalted when evil befell him? No, I have not allowed my mouth to sin by asking for his life in a curse. Although the New American Standard translates this first verse word in 29, have, what we have here is the continuation of the word if. And so the ESV does a better job here at this point. Job is continuing. For those who have not been with us, what he does in this chapter is he takes a series of oaths. Um, Self-maledictory oaths. Calling upon himself uh, terrible consequences if he has violated any of these uh, elements of piety that he is spelling out. Now sometimes the, the curse he calls upon himself is explicit. Other times it's simply left to uh, a sanctified imagination. So here again he takes this oath. So but really he, he's saying here, um, if I rejoiced at the extinction of my enemy or exalted when evil befell him and, it's not no, it's and, I have not allowed my mouth to sin by asking for his life. He is not in this point giving the curse, but it's implied. Let these things and worse happen to me because of my failure to love my enemy. Now, it's not easy to love your enemy, is it? Think how often when somebody abuses you or mistreats you or maybe they've slandered you or whatever and instinctively you're, you're lashing out against them. Even boys and girls, your brother or your sister hits you or, or says something mean to you. What do you want to do? You want to hit them back or you want to say something mean to them or about them. That is that remnant of sin that is in us, isn't it? And that it, we have a desire to take our own vengeance personally against those who have wronged us. But you see that Job is saying just the opposite. He is swearing that he has not rejoiced in the extinction of his enemy. And the extinction, the word actually means the, the destruction. And it's furthered uh, in the parallel with uh, when evil befell him. So he's not rejoiced. He's not been happy when destruction or evil came upon his enemy. And exalted the word is to rise up triumphantly, to rise up with uh, ego, to rise up with passion and joy when you see your enemy suffering. And Job is declaring here that, uh, you know, I've not done that. I have not in any way desired my enemy to suffer as he has caused me to suffer. He expands in verse 38. Um, simple and, the conjunction, uh, many 
commentaries or translators actually put this in a parenthesis. He's simply expanding on what he's saying. But whether it's a parenthesis or not, he's simply spelling out now that no, I've not allowed my mouth, and that is the my palate. Interesting poetic phrase here for his mouth, because it's the palate that allows us to use the tongue to speak. To sin. Now you see he's saying that if he'd done this, he was sinning. It's not just a matter of social nicety, is it? No, it's sin. If I have not have allowed my mouth, I've not allowed my mouth to sin by asking for his life in a curse. Now going a step further, and uh, cursing him, or asking God to curse her, the one who has done you wrong. Now we're all familiar with this response, aren't we? And it is contrary to everything that the Bible teaches us. Now, we read in our New Testament reading what the Pharisees taught. And that is they taught that you love your, your neighbor and you hate your enemy. And that was a, a construction. You remember from Pastor Groff's sermons in, in chapter 5, this is not Jesus taking away old covenant law. No, Jesus is taking away the wrong interpretations of old covenant law. And so uh, he corrects them when he says, you've heard said, you shall not love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? And he continues on there. So, what Jesus is pointing out here, this is not some New Testament, New Covenant ethic. It goes right back, well, we see, to Moses. It is reiterated then by Moses. It goes back to Job and reiterated by Moses, who actually prefaces the commandment that is quoted, you shall love your neighbors yourself. The previous verse says, you shall not hate your fellow countrymen in your heart. Proverbs 24, 17, Solomon writes, Do not rejoice when your enemy falls, and do not let your heart be glad when he stumbles. Moses makes it very practical in Exodus 23, 4, and 5. If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey wandering away, you shall return it to him. But even better, if you see the donkey of one who hates you lying helpless under its load, you shall refrain from leaving it to him. So the enemy is there with the donkey who's collapsed under the heavy load. Or who's standing by his flat tire on the highway. The enemy. You shall surely release it with him. You become a partner with him in helping him to get rid of this malady. You're not going by oh, waving. Oh man, I am so glad to see you suffering. Oh man, what trouble you've caused me. No, this in fact is rooted in the whole commandment that we are to love our neighbor as ourselves. The neighbor is the person with whom God brings us in contact. Your neighbor is your enemy. Your neighbor is the stranger that's within your gate. Christ uh, makes it very practical in our reading. You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. I say to you, do not resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also, boys and girls. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let him have your coat also. Whoever forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks of you. Do not turn away from him 
who wants to borrow from you. Now, I'm going to come back to this, but, you know, we bristle, don't we, at really small offenses. And that's what Jesus is getting at here, bristling at offenses that are not life-threatening or even property-threatening. No, he says that we are to turn the other cheek. Uh, Peter repeats this in 1 Peter 3. Sum up all, be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit. Not returning evil for evil, insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. For you were called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. You see there the relationship of our blessing and being heirs of God. Uh, Paul, if your enemy's hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And of course, the Savior himself, as Peter tells us, you've been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. Which is what we sang in Psalm 9. Now as we hear these words, I want to offer you four caveats so you'll stay balanced in your thinking. Four things that's not being forbidden here. Uh, and the first one is, I want you to understand the difference between Vindictiveness on the one hand and forgiveness on the other. The Bible nowhere teaches that you owe true biblical forgiveness except for the person who has asked for forgiveness. And that's a very important principle. Because God has established that for us. He doesn't just simply forgive people. He forgives those who by grace seek Him and ask for forgiveness. But we are never, and sometimes I think the Bible uses the word forgiveness this way, we're never to have a vindictive or vengeful attitude uh, to the person who doesn't ask for forgiveness. Now we then are to um, train ourselves not to have any resentful or hateful thoughts about them. But I just cringe when I hear these people who, you know, some serious crime was committed and, but we forgive you. Well, no. Until that person has humbled himself and asked forgiveness, and in a case of mass murder, from God first, and then from the victim's families, we don't owe them forgiveness, but we don't carry hatred in our heart toward them. Although, this leads to the second thing, we may long for justice against them. So what the Holy Spirit teaches here is not that uh, we don't pursue justice. Job had every right, if you can put together an army, to pursue the men who uh, had... Uh, murdered and stolen. And we know that because that's what Gen uh, uh, Abraham did, right? When Lot and his property was stolen. And it's what uh, David did when he pursued the Amalekites. So it's not wrong to pursue justice. Uh, it's not wrong, you know, turning the cheek doesn't mean that somebody has dealt with you in a way that has defrauded your estate and threatened your circumstances then it's not wrong to go to court against that person. And surely it's not wrong to kill in self-defense or to see the government raised up. <laughs> it's only primary responsibility uh, to defend us, to defend life, and to protect us. So um, we're talking about vindictiveness, not always forgiveness. We're talking about this doesn't mean you don't pursue 
justice when it's appropriate. Third thing is, this does not say that we may not rejoice in the punishment of enemies. Now, just consider what we have in the, um, the, uh, the Bible with respect to enemies. Uh, Psalm 58, the righteous will rejoice when he sees vengeance. He'll wash his feet in the blood of the wicked. And men will say, surely there's a reward for the righteous. Surely there's a God who judges on the earth. Pretty explicit, isn't it? Proverbs 11.10. When it goes well with the righteous, the city rejoices. And when the wicked perish, there is joyful shouting. Hmm. But this isn't simply an Old Testament uh, matter. It's been taken away in the New Covenant. No, the last book of the Bible. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, because God has pronounced judgment for you against her. Now, how do we bring these two things together? We have to distinguish between personal affronts and public affronts. Job, the Holy Spirit, these passages we read from the Savior and the apostles has to do with personal attacks. And that we're not to take umbrage against those who've acted against us in this way personally. It doesn't mean we don't seek justice, but in our hearts, we're not to rejoice when evil comes on them because they've done evil to us. But a public offense, you see, that's what all these passages are talking about. A public offense is when this person or this nation has acted against uh, the church or against the poor and the oppressed. And in heaven, we're going to rejoice over the destruction of the wicked. And now we may rejoice, not with a personal vengeance or vindictiveness, but corporately. When we see God step forth as judge and uh, punish those who have oppressed His people and His church, you should be happy and rejoice in that. And that leads to the fourth thing. What about imprecatory prayers? Does this mean we cannot pray in precatory prayers? We are told to pray for those who curse us, bless them. Well, how does this fit together? Well, just keep in mind the difference between personal and public. Personally, somebody offends me. I have no right to get all riled up and to pray for God to do something to them in life. But if it's a public offense, and that's where we see the imprecatory prayers throughout Scripture and in the New Testament, if it's a public offense, then we should be offended first for the glory of God and second for brothers and sisters that these things are being done to them by enemies. And the Christian has many enemies in the world. And Carol has a very good discussion of, of why people hate the righteous and why people hate the church. But when we see the destruction of babies in the womb, the mutilation of teenagers, the perversions of, uh, of marriage in the culture, uh, the, the wickedness of trafficking and uh, oppression, and the persecution of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have many words in Scripture to take upon our lips and from our hearts to pray that God indeed will punish them. Close the womb of the woman that commits abortions or her husband does so. Freeze the hand of a man who mutilates teenagers. Bring awful cl calamity against those who oppress the church. 
Now, how do you put two things together? I'm praying for their conversion. I say, Lord, please bless them by converting them. But if you don't, if it's not your will to convert them, then deal with them. As we sang in Psalm 9, in holy justice. I hope this helps you put these two things together. They have to do with what's public, what's private, what is real justice and what is not. But don't let this in any way alleviate the searching nature of what the Holy Spirit is teaching us here. So boys and girls, I've already addressed you about this. But if you get angry with your brother or your sister or a playmate uh, at the playground or at the co-op or at school, you are not to lash out against them. All right, that's hard. I know. I know those feelings. But it's the same with us as adults. And we, we have these problems, don't we? There are people that once maybe even were your friends and now have turned against you and they slandered you. That's something that in God's providence we are experiencing right now. Um, there will be those at work that uh, are, uh, hate you because you have a godly work ethic and you make them look bad. And they'll do you the way those men did Daniel. They'll try to trip you up and get you fired or in trouble. There'll be the people around you that notice your godliness and begin to sneer and mock. There's another form of mistreating our enemies, and that is turning friends into enemies. Now, how do you do that? By envy. You see, if you become jealous of what has happened to another Christian in terms of advancement or accolades or whatever. You've turned a Christian brother or sister into an enemy. And you, you're jealous because goodness came to them, which means what? You wish that it hadn't come on them. And so you must watch and guard your heart against envy. So these are things that the Spirit needs to search you and you need to be humble before God. Every one of us is condemned by this and that is the purpose of the law of God that we might repent of our sins and flee to Christ Jesus. And if right now you see yourself as one who really is a person who's just eaten up with hatred and bitterness, that describes your life, then you're far, far from Christ. And I urge you to uh, repent before God because there is no worse lifestyle. And in one sense, it's more destructive than other immoralities as it eats you up and as it consumes you. So repent and take hold of Christ Jesus. Because here we're told that we have costly love by uh, a love that embraces enemies. Well, there's another type of love that's addressed here. And it's also difficult. Maybe not as much. But in terms of its practicality, probably is. And that is that uh, biblical love uh, embraces strangers. That's the next two verses. Again, this is not have. It's if. If the men of my tent have not said, who can find one who's not been satisfied with his meat? The alien is not lodged outside, for I've opened my doors to the traveler. So he continues now with this oath of self-imprecation. We need first to address a matter of interpretation here. Because a number of the older writers, and you'll see this in the, uh, the authorized version, uh, take this as part of verses 29 and 30. Uh, and uh, what they interpret this as, the way the authorized uh, reads it, uh, if the men of my tabernacle said, oh, that we had his flesh, we cannot be satisfied. 
There, Job is supposedly praying that even though his close followers and the men that worked for him were urging him on to seek vindication, he didn't do it. And that is not a a wrong way to interpret the words that we have here. But if we look at the context, I think it's not the best way. I think the modern uh, translations uh, get much more to what is being said here, and and that is that his companions can be called on to testify that he's always satisfied the hungry with meat. And the word is flesh to show the fullness of this hospitality that Job has exercised. Now once again, this is radical. Again, the Savior uh, said in the passage we read, if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even Gentiles do the same? But Job is teaching us, the Holy Spirit is teaching us through Job, that we must go far beyond that. We must go that extra mile like the Good Samaritan. And we must love the stranger, the one who has uh, no... uh, We have no obligations to him whatsoever. And no one would ever know what we did with respect to him. The one that's passing through. Uh, The words are quite graphic. He says that um, uh, the alien has not lodged outside, and that is the foreigner who's passing through the midst. And then I love the next word. It's translated uh, uh, traveler. Um, I've opened my doors to traveler, and it's actually probably better understood as the wayfaring person. Again, this person passing through. Job said that he has been open-handed in generous hospitality to strangers. And he can call upon those who knew him best, the men of his household. He says, you know, if I'm lying, let me be cursed. If these men do not confirm what I've said, let me be cursed. He was so confident of the the regular exercise of piety with regard to the stranger that he could call that curse upon himself if they did not concur with him. Again, this simply reiterates what we find throughout Scripture. And Moses will later write, You shall not wrong a stranger or oppress him, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. There's a pattern here for you, you see. And early on, they were treated properly, hospitably, in the land of Egypt. And I want you just again to note, we've said this a number of times here, but when Job goes through this catalog, remember this is pre-Mosaic, because we've seen this is in the patriarchal period. And this then is the period before the law was given. And, but what the Holy Spirit shows us here is the, the parallel, so to speak, between the natural revelation. Remember, the law of God is written on the hearts of all people. And then the revelation that the saints would have received uh, from God passed on from generation to generation, at times reinforced with a vision. And then the Mosaic law and then coming to its climax in the New Covenant. It's one consistent principle of Scripture. And that's why we must hold to the unity of Scripture and the unity of God's covenant dealings. It's a beautiful concept. I particularly want to focus on the, the sacrificial nature of hospitality. For that's the concrete thing that Job uses here to uh, talk about uh, his love embracing strangers. And the Bible enforces this, so uh, 
You remember what Lot experienced in Genesis 19, 1 and 2? Two angels came to Sodom in the evening as Lot was sitting at the gate of Sodom. And when Lot saw them, he rose to meet them. He bowed down with his face to the ground and said, Now behold, my lords, please turn aside to your servant's house, spend the night, and wash your feet, that you may rise early and go on your way. Now the writer of the Hebrews picks up on this as a motivation to hospitality. It's very interesting. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for by this some entertain angels without knowing it. At one time we had a man we kept overnight and he was the most rude, obnoxious individual we've ever had in our home. And we jokingly said, well maybe God sent him as an angel to test us <laughs> because tested we were. But uh, uh, God, what Hebrews is showing us here is that God rewards those who are practicing the practice of Job. And so Hebrews then picks up on this. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. I've mentioned that. So, but then think of, of in the New Testament, um, the great blessing that enjoyed by Lazarus, Mary, and Martha. <laughs> hospitality to the itinerant teacher whom they early on knew was God's anointed Messiah. Or think about Christ saying, What's been done to the least of the brethren has been done to me. That when you give a cup of cold water to a Christian passing through, you visit them in the hospital or in prison, you feed or clothe them, you're actually not just doing this for an angel, you see. You're doing this for the Lord. So in this, what I want to amplify for our congregation then is this importance of Hospitality. Uh, many people wrongly think that hospitality is a gift that some of us have, but not all of us. Well, some might be better at it, but I hope you can just see from what we've already looked at that hospitality, in fact, is a Christian virtue. It is required by the law of God that we love our neighbor as ourselves. And so every person in the congregation needs to be committed to exercising hospitality within the congregation. Now, what's the qualification for that? Well, it doesn't mean you have to have a really nice house, nice furniture, or fancy tableware, or even good food. What it means is you open your arms and your home, and you have somebody come over for a meal. That's it. It might simply be on a Sunday evening. You know, we've got some leftovers. You want to come home with us for a while? Now, there is one qualification. And that is the house needs to be pleasant enough that people want to be there. Now, I say this. I, I, have, I was in one home. I was up in Philadelphia um, working on my doctorate when we were already pastoring Houston. I stayed with a friend. And only once. Uh, the cat was on the table where we were going to eat and the food was on the table. And there was a pile of dishes like the Tower of Babel, dirty dishes all around the sink. And so I appreciated their love and their willingness. But you see, you're not comfortable. So, you know, there's different levels of need. That's one thing. 
But there should be one level for cleanliness, and that is that people are comfortable being there. And if you have a pet, and I like this when people ask me, are you allergic, or do you mind a dog or a cat? Some people don't, but some people do. And so you find out ahead of time, and you put the beast away while you have company in the house. So that's the qualifications. Now, the use of hospitality is to have love and fellowship uh, in the body of Christ and uh, having table fellowship with one another. Uh, it is something that we should always do when there are visitors here, particularly if they're from out of town, to be sure that an out-of-town visitor, if they're not here with family, you know, don't have to be forced to go out to eat on the Lord's Day, but they can be taken into a home. Or the single men or women that are in our fellowship, and particularly uh, men who at seminary and they can't go home for the holidays. Can't go back to Africa. Uh, Isaiah goes back to the other foreign country on the West Coast, but um, uh, to be considerate of these people and to have them and other singles as well into your home, uh, particularly at holiday times for, for those special meals so that we are uh, to be committed to this. But it's a congregation that we commit to this, and that also means the singles of whom I've just spoken must enter into exercise in hospitality uh, as a group of men together, uh, or uh, I've encouraged uh, some of you to have one of the singles come and help you host a dinner and exercise hospitality. Now, it's also a very useful tool in evangelism. So you invite a, a neighbor or their family to come over for a meal. And you simply behave as you would normally. You pray over your food. You maybe have family worship afterwards. And it's a much better environment to get people to start talking. And, you know, we see all the flaws in our families, but believe me, your family, uh, as dysfunctional as you might think it is, is pretty ideal to the people that live in your neighborhood. And it can become quite an attraction for the gospel. I know one family that lived in a very posh street in, outside of London. And they would join in the houses of rotate having a, a wine and cheese get together on a weeknight. Now, we keep talking about doing that. It's a great thing to have a wine and cheese party, invite about five or six of your contingent neighbors over, get to know them and in that very informal atmosphere, have opportunities to live out the Christian life in front of them. Now, for evangelism also, we are very blessed to live near a university that has an RUF foreign student ministry. And if you're interested, it's very simple. We can get you the information. You can contact the campus minister and say, you know, this Christmas, maybe it's too soon this year, but next year or Thanksgiving, whatever, we would like to have a foreign student over um, uh, for uh, a holiday dinner, to have them into a Christian family because they're having contact, our press is having contact with countless numbers, particularly people from uh, communist China, atheist students who are responding to this hospitality. So you see, um, there's great opportunities there. Now, it's particularly required of all of us, but it's a particular qualification for elders uh, in the congregation, a listed qualification by the Apostle Paul. And that is, first we must set the tone and model it for the congregation. And by the way, Pastor Groff does a wonderful job with that. Um, and then we must be willing to teach people how to do it. Some people would like to exercise hospitality, but they're afraid. So uh, an elder or 
can happily say, come over and help us do it a couple of times, and then you'll be more comfortable to, to do it yourself. Now, as a congregation, soon by God's grace, we're going to be looking uh, at men and praying about uh, future elders. So one of the things I would say, look for, is this man exercising with his wife hospitality. Uh, now, it's more difficult in our congregation. We're spread out. But, you know, in Houston, we had about average drive time, about like here, 20 minutes, with some people living 45 minutes away. Um, and uh, so it's maybe not as often, but it's something that we're looking for. And you men that are going to the ministry, now's the time to develop this um, biblical responsibility. And the church itself, can, and we've talked about this a bit, can organize for this. So in Houston... Uh, we had an organized hospitality program with a rotation as we grew. It would be one family to signed up. Next time around, it might be two families that signed up. And we called it Entertaining Angels Unaware. This was not my idea. It's a great idea. Um, and the uh, acronym for that is EAU, which is French for water. So it all fits together. We're exercising hospitality, and we are doing this to minister to others. And so when people... Every week, there'd be one or two, as we grew, three families that had signed up for hospitality. Now, sometimes it's great. You can call uh, a family visit the church, and you get the phone number from the, the, the record, and call them and say, if you come next week, we'd love to have you for, for Sunday dinner, which encourages them to come back next week as well. And then if there are nobody, nobody's there from out of town or like that, then you just grab somebody in the church and you take them home. It worked really well to train us all in exercising hospitality. And so this sacrificial love, this costly love, uh, embraces the, the stranger and the foreigner. It also loves sacrificially within, uh, within the body of Christ. Before I do that, let me talk about radical hospitality. You perhaps got a bad idea of that by reading a book that came out a couple of years ago, but it is a great ministry for some people. Radical hospitality is having someone come live with you for a period of time. Put parameters on it, but perhaps it's an unwed mother or she's just had a baby. Perhaps it's a displaced person. Perhaps it's a person who just lost their job or uh, a person that uh, needs uh, time to get on their feet financially or they're new in town and they, they need a, a place to stay as they get settled. Or a new Christian. Great opportunities to mentor people if you have the, the gifts to be able to. And that is a gift. That goes beyond regular hospitality. It's not required of all, but God does give the inclination and the desire and the ability to do this. And I tell you what, because by God's grace we've done this, and some amazing things happen. And some amusing things happen, and some really sad things happen. <laughs> uh, one uh, amusing thing was we had a Pakistani that started coming to the church, and he had been converted from Islam. And he, uh, he had to go home, and his parents had arranged a marriage for him, and so his wife was Muslim. So they come back and stay with us. Well, the first thing she offered was, I won't be offended, you can have as many wives as you want. And so we were trying to explain to her, you know, the Christians don't do that. And she fixed us a wonderful meal, and they became lifelong friends. She came to Christ, and they lived down the Texas-Mexican border. Uh, Another man that we mentored that now is one of the most, the best in ministering to the poor and housing development and such as that. And some of you have, have met him. And so there's great rewards involved in that. And it's, it's great danger and expenditure and emotionally 
as well, and financially. But if you have the gift and the facilities, and then be careful. I know the Scipiones had a bad problem with that in terms of what happened with one of their children. So you must also be very careful and wise, particularly in the day in which we live. But then sacrificially within the body of Christ, these privileges that we have to serve one another. And I just commend this congregation for you ladies taking meals to those that need meals, for all of you that helped uh, Miss Green through this time and she was in such hard studies and uh, food and uh, childcare and homeschooling. See, these are things that are so beautiful. They're, again, fulfilling. It's not the stranger, it's, it's the one in our midst. But that's the most beautiful part of gospel love. And uh, we also want to be given uh, to the practice of that. And so the Holy Spirit teaches us that real biblical piety, uh, biblical love is exercised both to the enemy and to uh, the stranger. Now, it's, it's a bit, could be a bit depressing we think about this, and I'm not calling on all of you to do this all the time, but, but it's a bit depressing to be, called, to be challenged about our attitude toward enemies. And it's a bit challenging to be challenged about hospitality. Uh, and we need to seek the grace of Christ to do this. But let me give you two motivations. And the first motivation is, again, the law of love that Christ gives to us in Matthew chapter 5. In everything, therefore, treat people the same way you want them to treat you. For this is the law and the prophets. And it is. Uh, and then it's, it's interesting. He says, this is how you fulfill love your neighbor as yourself. When he says this is the, it's the same way he concludes that summary of the commandment, isn't it? This is the law and the prophets. And this, this pattern of love is self-love. Do unto others you have to do unto you. Uh, you don't want people cursing you. You don't want people treating you badly. Um, and so that becomes the motivation to help guard your heart. And you, if you're stranded in a city, if your car is broken down on the side of the road, if you are at a strange church, and I hear horror tales of people who visit Reformed churches and nobody even speaks to them. We must go far beyond that. Some people have questioned how friendly are we? You know, I think we love each other so much that we can sometimes forget about the stranger that's within our midst. And you seminary students, and I tell you, I watch you. You know, three of you are in a holy huddle over in a corner. And there's all kinds of things that need to be done uh, with people. Uh, are things in the congregation. And so, uh, treat others as you would have them treat you. But then, the great motivation is that of the Savior. Bodied in John 3.16, embodied. God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son. But our Savior Himself, we read that in Peter, while being reviled, He did not revile in return. While suffering, He uttered no threats. He kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. He was slapped on the cheek. He turned the other cheek. He was buffeted. He was mocked. He was slandered. He bore all of this for us. And hospitality? What did he do? You know how the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. All that he did was leave his heavenly home in terms of the personal uh, act of the second person that God had. He humbled himself. 
made himself of no reputation. Why? To bring you to home. To make you a brother and a sister in the family of God. You see, he exercised hospitality, didn't he? And so we see the Savior. We know the love of self. And of course, our Savior is not just a, a model. He's also the enabler. And as we find ourselves wrestling with these things, whether it's attitude toward others or enemies or strangers, then we cry out to Christ for pardon, but then for grace. Take the sermon seriously. Seek an area in your life where you can begin to step forward, resting in the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Oh, holy God, we thank you that uh, your word challenges us. And you've challenged us, Lord, this morning uh, in this sermon. And we thank you for that. We pray that you'll give us humility and grace to respond as we should. And that, Lord, you will make us such a glorious, loving people that others around us will see our love for you and one another. And it'll be like a magnet, Lord, to draw people to the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Antioch Presbyterian Church. We are located in the historic Cashville community of Woodruff, South Carolina, near the intersection of South Carolina Highways 101 and 417. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com.